So um, welcome back. So tonight I want to do two things. I want to jump ahead and do a topical lesson. And um, the lesson is going to be around the theme of why there seems to be an apparent discrepancy between the ethics of Yahweh and the ethics of Jesus when it comes to violence. And then we're going to go back and we're going to talk more about the uh, Old Testament laws. And I think if you have a good understanding of God's perspective on holiness and violence, and you can understand the differences, the continuities between the Old Testament and the New Testament, then it's going to help you to understand the purpose of the laws a little bit better. Okay, so that's kind of my plan for tonight. So we're going to start off um, with um, a bit of a lesson lecture on on um, redemptive violence. Okay, so you want to take some notes tonight because some of the stuff's really, really important, especially for those of you that interact regularly with unbelievers who may ask questions like, why is the Bible so violent? Um, some of the things I'm going to share with you tonight, I think, are, are super important. And I have taught on this before at a theological conference, so I've had, a, have had some time to really think through it. And uh, hopefully the material that I'm able to deliver tonight will be, like, super helpful for you. But let's just start with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll get into it. So, Lord God, thank you for the gift of your word and Lord, we know it takes a lifetime of study to understand, and even then we cannot fully comprehend everything that you've revealed to us because we are inadequate to do so. Nevertheless, Lord, we pray that we would understand it to the best of our abilities and that we would always be thirsty to understand more of your word so that we can personally grow and so that we can live out our faith and so that we can defend our faith against uh, skeptics. So bless our time together tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys ready to go? You got some paper and a pen? Take some notes? All right. So let me just kind of talk through some stuff, and then I'll, um, if you have questions along the way, why don't you kind of just jot them down at the bottom of your piece of paper, and then I'll have a little Q&A after this session, but I really want to kind of focus in on it. So uh, really what we're talking about is uh, an issue of ethics, and I've given this illustration to you before, if you've taken some of my classes, but when we... Think of the Christian faith, so this is the Christian faith, it's helpful to think of it as a three-legged stool. And the three-legged stool involves theology, ethics, and apologetics. Now, each of these legs holds up the stool. Theology deals with the content of our faith. So this is the word that relates to content. Like what actually is it that we believe? Ethics is all about the practice of our faith. And apologetics is about the defense of our faith. And each of these legs benefits from the other. So under the heading of ethics, we can ask simple questions. A simple ethical question would be, is it right to steal a chocolate bar from Walmart? 
And we can have a little debate about that, and all of you would say, yeah, it's wrong. But there's also more complex ethical questions like, should the state execute rapists? And then all of a sudden you have emotion involved, and you have complexity involved, and that becomes a little more of a challenging question for people to provide an answer to. So ethics is essentially the branch of our faith that deals with practice, both the simple questions and the more complex, debatable, divisive questions. Ethics, however, is not distinct from theology or apologetics. There's a lot of overlap. For instance, ethics shows how good theology content is applied. And who of us would ever say, oh, the Christian life is just about growing in knowledge. Practice means nothing. No, of course. We want to learn truth, and then we want to figure out, okay, what's the application of that truth? So ethics helps us to uh, answer that question. And in addition to this, when moral principles um, seem to clash or might even at times seem at first read repulsive, oh, why would God say that? That sounds kind of inappropriate. The study of ethics helps us to sort through those apparent contradictions. So ethics helps us to live morally, and it works in conjunction with theology and apologetics to provide a faith that is marked by integrity. And when I mean integrity, I mean cohesiveness. It keeps it all together. So what you want to do as a Christian is you want to grow in all three of these because they all influence one another and they help to support your faith make it solid so that's a little background on ethics but what happens when the character which is a topic we talk about under theology of god so one of the things we deal with theology is who is god and when we talk about God, we start off with the foundational question of what are the attributes of God? Or another way of putting that would be, what are the characteristics of God? And under ethics, do we not regularly say, hey, what would Jesus do? And asking that question, what we're actually revealing about our, our faith is that we believe that the ethics of Jesus inform our ethics. So we're doing a little study on the ethics of God. And what happens when the ethics of God and the character of God appear to collide? This is an emotionally charged question. It's an intellectually stimulating question. And it has huge implications for apologetics and how we present and understand our faith. So I want to discuss with you tonight the apparent ethical discrepancy between Yahweh, and I taught you this last week, Yahweh is the covenantal name of God revealed early on in Genesis. And we believe Jesus is God, 
incarnated in human flesh, the eternal son of the Godhead. What happens when there seems to be an apparent ethical discrepancy between Yahweh God and his pronouncements about violence, pro-violence, and participating in violence. So what are some examples of that? Holy war. I want you to go and kill them off. Capital punishment. You did that crime, you're getting killed. And even the Canaanite genocide in the Old Testament. So we got, see those guys with the helmets and shields over there? Go fight them. See that guy that just raped a woman? Go kill him. Hey, see that group of villagers over there that are just plowing their fields and raising their kids? Go kill them. These are violent acts sanctioned by God. And then on the other hand, Jesus says, I'd like you to turn the other cheek and exercise forgiveness. Now, surely you've thought about this as you've read the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures. And maybe you even had the pleasure of having a unbeliever aim both barrels of their skeptical gun at you, pull the trigger and say, ha ha, have you not read your Bible? The Old Testament and the New Testament have two very different gods in it. And which, are, which God are you going to follow? Let me give you an example of a famous atheist that has very much expressed his animosity to us on this subject. Maybe you've heard of him. His name is Richard Dawkins. And Dawkins wrote a book called The God Delusion. So you don't even have to read past the cover to figure out what his premise is. The God Delusion. Here's what he says. Got to get my mouth warmed up here. Okay. Quote, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, meaning one that hates women. Homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, meaning filicide is when a parent kills their own child. Pestilential, meaning harmful and annoying. Megalomaniacal, meaning obsessed with grandeur. Sadomasochistic, that's someone that derives pleasure from inflicting abuse on other people. Capriciously, meaning unpredictable, malevolent bully. That's what he says about God. Now, sidebar, if it wasn't for the Judeo-Christian ethic, Dawkins wouldn't even know what half those words meant. (laughs) Because they're moral words. And if you don't have a moral authority, you don't have moral language. And if you don't have moral language... You can't judge things to be moral or immoral, but I would just say his, his passion for morality betrays him. Well, that's a little sidebar. 
Nevertheless, you too, as you've read the scriptures, have probably heard, uh, maybe in the back of your mind or in, from people who you've discussed your Christian faith with, people say, you know, your God is a murderer, or he's sadistic, or he's vicious. And perhaps you've even read some of the Old Testament, and you've come away kind of confused about how God, who, can, who tells us he's loving, could commission acts of utter violence. So I want to compare some scriptures with you tonight. You can grab a Bible. And um, we're going to look at Jesus first and just some words of Jesus. So let's get over to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to have one of you read this for us. Matthew chapter 5, verses 39 to 41. It's kind of a sword drill. The first person there gets to read it. (laughs) Go ahead, Mark. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, Let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Okay, thanks, Mark. Now, we could also look at Luke 6. You can just write that down. Luke 6, Jesus says, love your enemies. Matthew 5, Jesus says, pray for those that persecute you. Now, these we know are because we've experienced persecution and threats, I'm I'm sure. They're very challenging to live out, but at least we know we're supposed to live them out. And when they are lived out, it's also true that they make Christianity very attractive because they're so unusual. That's not how the world operates. And so the teachings of Jesus are attractive. Now, every preacher knows this, any preacher worth his weight in salt, knows that if you want to attract people to your church and you got a road sign, it's a much better move to say, Jesus loves you than Jesus might kill you before you get home tonight. And so, even in our preaching in our hate the word but marketing presentation advertising we tend to go to the passages that we know are more palatable and present those first than presenting you know the wrath of god or hellfire and brimstone But more pointedly, Jesus spoke these words, and um, we all want to be like Jesus, so we have to consider them. Now, so we got, I think, a pretty good handle. We could go, we could spend a lot of time in the New Testament looking at several passages about this, but I think you're all schooled enough that you know what, you, you know that what Jesus said there in Matthew 5 is kind of threaded through the whole of the New Testament. Let's talk about Yahweh. So Jesus is... We often think of him like this, right? He's the God of love. Yahweh, he's the God who has a sword in his hand. 
So let's get over to Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7. Not too far into the Bible, still in the Torah. And first two verses. And again, if you're there, you can read it for the class. Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2. God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Mm. Has any anybody here ever done any study on the last phrase before you shall not make a treaty with them. In my version, it says, devote them to complete destruction. What did your version say, Kelly? Uh, destroy them totally. Okay. So this is a, a, a Hebrew word. Um, I think it's harim. Um, but in the older versions, it was often called a ban. And a ban meant absolute and total destruction. So sometimes when God sent the Jews in to do battle, they were allowed to take plunder. That wasn't a ban. Other times, everything's got to go, and you're like, what a waste. Kill all their sheep, kill their oxen, tear down the walls of the city. You're like, well, wouldn't it make more sense to keep the city and inhabit it? Wouldn't it make more sense to add their animals to your flock? Wouldn't it make more sense to keep their gold? But time and time again, God's like, no, everything has got to go. And who was the famous Old Testament character that violated that and hid some stuff under his tent? Achan. Achan. Violated the ban. Like, this doesn't make sense. This is treasure. Why would I not keep it? God's like, no, I want you to devote it to complete destruction. Everything that these people have ever touched has to go. Show them no mercy. Now, perhaps even more disturbing, if you go to Ezekiel 21, because you might think to yourself, well, they're just dirty, rotten old Canaanites. But even more disturbing in Ezekiel 21 is God's violence against his own covenantal people. So look at Ezekiel 21, verses 2 to 5. Who will read that for us? To defend the Son of Man, yeah. set your face toward Jerusalem, preach against the holy places, and prophesy against the land of Israel. And say to the Lord of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, and I will draw my sword out of its sheath, and cut off both righteousness and wicked from you. Because I will cut off both righteous and wicked from you. Therefore, my sword shall go out of its sheath against all flesh from south to north that all flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword out of its sheath. It shall not return anymore. Who did God say he was going to draw his sword against? Okay, and who in Israel? The righteous and the wicked. Both. I'm going to kill you all. Now, if we had more time, we could appeal to several more examples that seem to present a clash between the peace-loving 
passive Christ and the violent, destructive Yahweh. And the challenge here is that since Christian orthodoxy claims that Jesus is in fact God, we have an apparent moral problem on our hands. So that's it. I'm going to go home. <laughs> if you guys can figure it out. Here's where I want to take us. I want to, I want to uh, propose that... Get rid of this stuff here first. Problem number one is a temptation to oversimplify scripture and ethics, theology and ethics. So sometimes our response to these apparent contrasts is met with I'll just call them lame answers or ignorant answers. So one, the most, po the most common one, which like makes me kind of like go like this every time I hear it. And don't, just don't ever say this in my presence unless you want to get punched. Okay? <laughs> Is, well, that's just Old Testament. Well, that's just Old Testament. How many times have we heard that? Well, that's just Old Testament. That does, that does nothing to answer the question or resolve the discrepancy. It's Holy Bible. The loving Jesus quoted from the Old Testament a lot, authoritatively. So it's just saying, well, that's just Old Testament. That's like the lamest answer ever. Just like get rid of that one from your mindset. Think about what it implies. It implies that Yahweh and Jesus are different. Or it, for some people, it implies that God evolved. So here, here's one. That's just Old Testament. Here's another one that's just equally absurd. Equally absurd. And I would say that probably, I'm just going to totally guess here, half of you that were raised in church were taught this. God is about the law in the Old Testament, and he's about grace in the New Testament. That is also equally ridiculous. Don't ever say that around me, okay? Because I'll get mad. I'll start acting more like Yahweh. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Both Testaments are filled with laws, and both Testaments are filled with grace. I understand that there is something called the law, a corpus of religious law that the Old Covenant people were responsible to obey that we have been freed from. But to even remotely suggest that God somehow is a different character in the Old Covenant scriptures and the New Covenant scriptures is a violation of the most basic of Christian theology, which is God is immutable. It doesn't change. Because I know what people mean by that. They're not actually talking about the difference between law and grace. They're talking about, they're, they're implying that they see there's a, that there's a difference in the character of God. That he's just loving and gracious in the New Testament. He's kind of mean and vindictive in the old. That's just like, 
That's heresy. In fact, it's, it's heresy. But there are some people that are, are like that. So there's some people that just tend to um, try to skirt around the issue by thinking, well, God is, is different under both covenants. Let me give you a, scriptures that just, uh, a scripture that makes that impossible to believe. James 1.17. James 1.17 says about God that he's the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's the father of lights. That's a good word. And there is no variation or shadow due to change. All of us evolve or devolve in terms of our personality, our outlook, our actions, our behaviors. You know, we're not, none of us are the exact same people we were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. We're always changing, hopefully for the better, maybe sometimes for the worse. God doesn't change. So to write off this is a simplistic response to write off the apparent discrepancy between Yahweh and Jesus as, well, that's just like a dispensational difference. That's just a difference between Old Testament and New, New Testament or Old Covenant and New Covenant. We're still left explaining to our critics, why did your God perform those acts? Is he your God or is he not? Do you worship the God of Moses or don't you? Well, yeah, but... Okay, if you do, I still want to know why you committed those acts. So it doesn't, it doesn't help. Nor, nor should we take the viewpoint of other authors. I read of one by the, a man by the name of C.S. Cowles, C-O-W-L-E-S, and he is the author of a book called Show Them No Mercy, and it's basically looking at four proposals by four different, four different viewpoints on why God sanctioned the Canaanite genocide. And in his view, here's what he says. He writes, quote, um, over against a bloody history saturated with violence, believed, this is the key phrase, believed to be divinely initiated and sanctioned, Jesus issued a new commandment. That's on page 29 of his essay. And if you think about that, what he's essentially saying is, well, we, we actually just got God wrong under the Old Testament. We kind of misunderstood him. And so therefore, if that's true, then we have 39 books that are suspect and that are not reliable witnesses of who God is. So that's a theological question of how we're supposed to act. That's an ethical question. And now we got the Old Testament competing with the New Testament, so we have a huge apologetic problem. So it doesn't resolve the issue. So the question is, is the Old Testament trustworthy to introduce to us the true God? It must be. Why must it be? Because Jesus, the lover, quoted from the Old Testament authoritatively. So there couldn't have been a discrepancy in his mind. Can't imagine how there could be. In other words, if the writers of the Old Testament understood God wrongly, then how could Jesus get away with authoritatively quoting from a fallacious source? Couldn't. So, um, we can't say, well, that's just Old Testament. And we can't say, 
God has evolved. And we can't say we got God wrong. So just throw those, I would say, simplified responses out the door. And instead, I'd like to propose some, I'm going to call them considerations. And I have a few of them for you that I believe reconcile the apparent discrepancy. So my basic premise is that Jesus and Yahweh have the same ethic, exactly the same ethic. Their ethic is exactly the same. You're like, okay, it's going to be fun proving this one. Let me make an attempt. I want to start off with what I'm calling a covenantal consideration. A covenantal consideration. So the first one is covenantal. Okay, covenantal. And write down two words beside that. Immediacy and delay. Immediacy and delay. If I say to you, I'm going to give you $100 immediately, that means I'm going to give it to you right now. If I say I'm going to give you $100, but I'm going to wait a month, that means you're going to wait 30 days. If I say you're going to get punished immediately, it's going to be right away. If I say I'm going to delay it for a month, you're going to have to wait a month. The end result is the same. You get your punishment or you get your money, but the timing is different. And one of the keys to understand the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the difference between immediacy and delay. Let me explain this to you. Under the Old Covenant, there are numerous records of God sanctioning violence against those who are going to disobey his law or blaspheme his holiness. Two things, essentially. You're going to mess with God's character, there's punishment. You're going to mess with God's word, there's going to be punishment. And, as we're going to see later on, especially in Leviticus 20, there's several of those laws that God puts in place, and he's like, okay, if you violate them, you're actually going to die. That's pretty significant. These are all acts in the scriptures of divinely sanctioned violence against, we'll just call it, sin. And... If you read the context and you see how God is presented, really what it all boils down to is God trying to guard his rightful claim to be the one true God. It's really what it all boils down to. So do God's laws protect us if we obey them? Yes. But if you bring it all back to the core issue, even look at the order of commandments, the Ten Commandments. They all start off with God pointing attention to himself. Don't take my name in vain. Don't make idols to replace me and so forth and so on. And then the later laws, adultery, stealing, relate to our relationships between one another. But the foundation of them is God is more concerned about his own holiness than your relationships going well. 
And for this reason, one theologian, his name is Eugene Merrill, he argues that God's violence is more about deicide than it is about homicide. So what is deicide? What is homicide? What's homicide? We know what that is. <coughs> homicide is um, not homicide. <coughs> homicide is me killing. Yeah, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> me killing another person, another person killing me. Deicide is the death of a god. And so God's violence toward people that have replaced him with idols or God's violence toward people that have broken his law could arguably be more about God wanting to wipe out other gods and all traces of those gods than simply wanting to get rid of the people that happen to worship those gods. So as he sends a group into a Canaanite village and is like, wipe out all the people, that's homicide. But that doesn't start, stop there. It's like down with the altars. Everything that was accumulated, it's, a, it's considered a blessing from that God. It's gone. Okay, think about this. How many times in the Old Testament does God say to his people, if you obey me, here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you children. I'm going to give you safety. I'm going to give you long life. I'm going to give you wine and oil, choice commodities, indicative of wealth. Uh, your animals aren't going to miscarry. On and on and on and on. How many times does God say that? Many times. All the other nations had the same mindset. Canaanite village. Oh, those sheep, those are from Moloch. Those children, those are from Shemosh. The fact that we have this nice structure to live in, that's from Baal. God's like, it's all got to go. Why does it all have to go? Because in the ancient Near Eastern mindset, all of this stuff was devoted to the gods. So when God's like, it's all got to go, I want it all to be devoted to destruction. God is going way beyond killing people. He's committing an act of deicide against everything that was associated with a false god or a series of false gods. And this then would have functioned as a polemic, an argument against all the other Canaanites and all the other Gentiles who were looking in saying, oh, not only did those Baal worshipers get killed out, killed off, but all of the blessings associated with Baal are also gone. Baal must not be true. But it would have been super weird in the ancient Near East for them to kill off the people and keep the spoils which were dedicated to the pagan gods that these people had worshipped. And so Yahweh asks for everything to be wiped out. 
Now, keep in mind that the same destruction awaited any member of Israel who blasphemed Yahweh's name. Check out Leviticus chapter 20, verse 3. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from his people because he has given one of his children to Moloch, that's a pagan god, to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. So then he goes on to say, and if the people of the land do do at all close their eyes to that man who gives his children to Moloch and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut off from among their people, cut cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring. Notice this, a sexual word there, after Moloch. God saw it as a violation of his relationship with his people as their father. So in doing so, Yahweh communicates that his real intention is to use his nation, not as a means, we're not going out to war, guys, to gain material wealth. And if you think that's why we're going to war, you got it wrong. We're not going to war so we can steal everyone else's stuff. That's what other nations do. That's not how we roll. Other nations do that. Why'd they go to war? They wanted your women. They wanted your children as slaves. They wanted your gold. They wanted your wealth. They wanted your land. God's like, no, that's not why we're doing it. We're actually going to get rid of all that stuff. We're going to destroy it all to prove that the reason why we're going to war is to guard my holiness against all fake competitors. And that is a radically different approach to warfare, which I think is almost exclusive to the Israelites compared to the other nations and their motivations for going to war. They went to war for stuff. Israel was to go to war for God. And that's what makes it truly the only holy war. In Leviticus 11, you can head on over there. Leviticus 11, 43 to 45. Let's read that one. Again, I'll get one of you to do that. Just go ahead and read it when you're... Who's got it? Yeah, uh, it's Leviticus 11, 43 to 45. Who's reading that for me? Don't make me do all the work. Hmm. Nancy? Okay. Make yourself detestable of any swearing thing that swarms, and shall not defile yourselves with them, and become unclean through them. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourself with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Okay, we had a little discussion last week about food and why certain food items were allowed to be eaten or not. But apart from that, so as not to repeat the conversation, what I want you to see in that text is the primary reason why the food laws are there. 
What, what is God's ultimate goal for his people? Holiness. Very simple. You're like, what's my mission? God wants me to be holy as he is holy. And so Yahweh's violence is presented in the narratives of scripture as an expression of his rightful jealousy to guard his holiness and by extension, the holiness of his people. So it's true at first glance, Yahweh seems more wrathful under the old covenant compared to Jesus. But in actual fact, that's not true. Because Jesus is not all about peace and harmony and love. He's not. That's not a proper reading of the New Testament. Jesus believed in hellfire. So I want you to look at some passages. Someone read Matthew 5.22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the counsel of whoever says, you fool, you will be liable to hell of fire. Let me give you another one. Matthew 8, 12. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what do we have here? We have from Jesus' mouth pronouncements of severe and extreme death judgment against men. Jesus evidently also believed, as did Yahweh, that violations of God's holiness demanded death. Now, what's the difference between war and hell? Old Testament, go kill them off. Jesus, you don't cut it out, eternal hellfire. I'll tell you what the difference is. Right here. That's the only difference. Either way, you die. But under the old covenant, the consequences were more immediate. Under the new covenant, the consequences were more Delayed. In other words, Yahweh pronounces judgment and Jesus pronounces judgment against sin. But with Yahweh, the punish is more, punishment is more immediate. And with Jesus, his damnation pronouncements included an element of delay, even, okay, even at times eschatological delay. So if you were in church on Sunday and you heard me preaching on Revelation chapter 6, that's an example of eschatological judgment, which God will pour out on the world. And in many respects, it's more violent and more frightening than ancient Near Eastern warfare. Now, this is, I'm going to give you an opposite analogy to help with this. So when you're reading the Old Testament, we'll, we'll say mostly the Old Covenant, okay? Not all the Old Testament is... Old Covenant, but most of it is. Let's talk about blessings. So right now we're talking about violence and punishment, but let's just talk about blessings for a moment. Now this, 
assuming you're not a health, wealth, and prosperity advocate. I've already tipped you off to some of this. God's like, I'm not, I'm not going to kill you. I want to bless you now. So we're having a different conversation. I want to bless you. How's God going to bless you under the old covenant? Materially, what would you say? Food, food, family. This is why there's always a question mark about God's blessings when you have an infertile woman under the old covenant. And God blesses Abraham. And then like almost every, well, actually every generation in Genesis has a fertility issue. And each of those fertility issues, I believe, is a deliberate test to see if they are going to believe in God's promises to bless Abraham's physical offspring. And once they survive the test, then they have the opposite problem in Exodus, which is supra fertility. The kids are just coming out of everywhere. And it freaks the Egyptians out. and They try to wipe them all out. But if you look at uh, Abraham's wife is who? Sarah. She's a fertility issue. Isaac's wife is fertility issue. Uh, Jacob's favorite wife, fertility issue. And then following the line of Christ, Judah's daughter-in-law, fertility issue. But it wasn't really her fault. Her husband's kept dying on her. So in a weird way, Judah kept getting her pregnant. So the, the, the issue is, in the line of the Messiah, every one of the 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 patriarchs have a fertility issue and it casts a question. Why do we even need that information? Like, why do we care thousands of years later that they had a fertility issue? Why, out of all the things about their autobiographies that could have been included in the Bible, why do we get that information? Because it questions God's ability to fulfill his covenant and God always comes through and then he proves it in very boldly in Exodus. So all of the old covenant blessings, and this is why you're not going to get a very good, well-rounded understanding of heaven and hell by reading the old Testament because God just hadn't given them all that revelation yet. So they have a very underdeveloped eschatology compared to us. And just a little sidebar, this is why, you'll have questions by some Old Testament saints like Job. And he's like, I don't know where we go down to Sheol. To, who knows whether we rise up or not? Like he, his, his understanding of the afterlife was foggy. And just because God had not revealed all of that to him yet. Let's say to the New, New Testament. Oh, you're a Christian. You're a new Christian. Let me tell you what that means. You're going to have a new car. You're going to have lots of kids. You're going to have a house, a lot of money. Would we ever say that? Not unless we're a false teacher. Because the New Testament never guarantees physical blessing. Proverbially, if we follow God's ways, we often are physically blessed. You know, handle our money the way God wants. But how does the New Testament speak of blessings? Right on. Eternal life. So it's the exact same thing. Blessings under the Old Covenant are immediate. Blessings under the New Covenant are delayed. Curses under the old covenant are immediate. Curses under the new covenant are delayed. So 
Rather than saying, oh, we have a huge discrepancy between the Old Testament and New Testament, I don't think we do at all. I think we have a covenantal consideration, and the covenantal consideration is there are differences of timing. There are differences of immediacy versus delay. So in short, God's blessings and his wrath are more immediately felt under the Old Covenant, and God's blessings and wrath under the Old Covenant are largely displayed. Now, this doesn't, we've got to talk about some more stuff, because this doesn't, still doesn't help the skeptic come to grips with um, their concerns about the genocidal God of the scriptures. But what it does do is it helps us to understand that while there's, there's not continuity, there's discontinuity, there's differences between timing under the old covenant and new, there is not discontinuity. This is critical. This, there, is, there is not discontinuity. In fact, there's continuity in the character of God. There's continuity in the character of God and in the being of God. The God, if you might say, of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, which we believe is the same God, both blesses and damns. But his method of operations are different and his timing is different. So here's some takeaways before we go to point two. Number one, I'm going to give you three. We must be careful not to falsely advertise God in this present age by referencing only the attributes that people like. And they would include love and mercy and patience and kindness and grace. We also need, we need to preach that, but we also need to present the God of both covenants as a God who is righteous, who is just, who is absolutely holy, and who is wrathful. And here's a little ditty we often say. There's no good news unless you understand the bad news first. So love and mercy and tender kindness and grace really aren't that awesome if you don't realize what you're justly deserving of. That's point number one. Point number two, these are implications. We mustn't impose biblical ethics that we're, we're bound by upon God. So God's ethics, so we're supposed to act like Jesus. Well, not exactly. Mostly, but not exactly. Because Jesus and God are allowed to act in ways that we're not allowed to act. So there, there's not total continuity between our actions and God. God, because he's God, Jesus, who's God, has the right to both give and take life. That's not my innate right to give and take life, but it is God's innate right because God is the creator of the world. He may choose to do so immediately or he may choose to delay. That's his sovereign choice. Third consideration, there is continuity between Yahweh and Jesus and their outlook and their pronouncements against evil. Just read the Bible thoroughly. Both of them are saying, if you do it, you die. Both of them are saying, we're kind of concerned about holiness. 
But there's also discontinuity and timing due to covenantal considerations. So discrepancy number one, this apparent contradiction, is actually a human problem, not a divine problem, which is true of all contradictions in Scripture, apparent contradictions. Contradictions in Scripture always boil down to you're reading the wrong book, you have a crummy translation, you're lacking in knowledge, you're blinded by sin, or you're finite in your mindset. It's always one or a combination of those things. It's never an actual contradiction in Scripture. So this is the first one. This is a covenantal consideration. Then I want to talk about character considerations. And what I'd like you to write down here, the character consideration, is the temptation to make God in our image. I think this is a huge problem when it comes to interpreting scripture. Is we're made in God's image, but when we're trying to figure out God, we make him in our image. And I'll kind of explain what I think that looks like. So here's what I'm going to start off with saying. We're all finite. We're all limited. None of us are really very smart at all. And we're, we're rather feeble creatures. And we're trying to figure out things about God that are rather profound. And part of our challenge in trying to understand and comprehend God is that in part, I think actually in large part, we learn by analogy. We learn by analogy. So an analogy is comparing one thing to another that has a likeness in order to understand this thing using this thing. We take things out of the material world and we use them to further our understanding of something else. So when you're a little, like, does anybody here remember being six months old? No. Your mind was underdeveloped. You hadn't had enough experiences, but slowly over time, you start to touch things. They have different textures. And you start to see things in the light and in the dark. And you see different colors. And you hear voices and sounds. And you start to accumulate experiences. And you accumulate, you rapidly accumulate all these experiences. And over time, you're able to look at an object and say, poodle. And then see another object fly by and say, bird. How are you able to know the difference between those two things? A whole series of pieces of information were communicated to you and you accepted them through experience and teaching and you're like, that, that has a different shape and a different texture and it moves differently and that's a bird. And then you can start to distinguish, okay, over time, that's a blackbird, that's a bald eagle. They're both birds, but they have different shapes and different characteristics. And so this is how we, we grow. We learn by analogy. So when humans think about our, our, our um, attempts to describe God, even in Scripture, this is a human book. It's a divine book, but it's written in human language, so God uses our language to communicate himself to us. Okay, what is God like? Um, he's the light? Well, not really. 
It's not light, but that's an analogy. God is, is, uh, God is light. Um, so it's like we have the sun. The sun is brilliant. It's, it's significant. We need it. It warms us up. We, we are attracted to it. Oh, God is, God is like the sun. God is like light. Now, God is not literally the sun or light because those are created things. But he's like the sun or he's like the light. So naturally, finite people try to pull things out of a finite world to try to describe an infinite God. And we choose great things out of a finite world to try to describe an infinite God. And that's okay. The scriptures does that for us. Here are some. God is described in the scriptures as a lion in addition to a light. He's described as a lamb. He's described as fire. And he actually reveals himself to us as fire in the burning bush, in the pillar of fire, in the wilderness. He's revealed to us as father. These are, these are concepts out of the created world that God provides us with to try to describe to us in all of our limitations what he is. These analogies help us to understand God and we embrace them. But the problem is, is when we take this reasoning too far and we start to impose our values upon God, our virtues on God. And we're like, well, I can't act like that. So how can God act like that? Like, I'm not allowed to just go kill people. So God, who do you think you are? And we start to get angry with God. And what are we doing? We're actually taking our virtues and our values, some of which are given to us by God, and we impose them on God. But the values and virtues of created finite beings are not necessarily the same as the values and virtues that an infinite being is bound to, because there's a few characteristics about God that, he sort of um, one-ups us on. And I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek there. So what happens, though, is if we start to treat God and we, we assume that, well, we do this or that, so God needs to do this or that, we treat each other this way or that way, and so God must treat everyone else the same way, we start to make God in our image, we impose ourselves on God, and then we're shocked. We stare in shock when God doesn't act like we act. And it happens all the time. So properly understood then against the backdrop of a good theology of God, Yahweh's violence actually underscores his love. Track with me on this. God's violence actually underscores his love for his own holiness and for a people that he wants to make holy. So one of the values of God, if you could call it that, is himself. God is, God will do 
everything to guard his own holiness. And he is very concerned about us acting in a holy way. And so he will even go to the extent of punishing and committing violent acts. In fact, if you understand God's holiness, without a measure of violence in response to willful rebellion, God's love for himself and for you are actually diminished. He's got to think about that one for a minute. If God is not willing to guard his holiness and your holiness at all costs, then in fact God is diminishing his own holiness. You could just put it this way. If you're not willing to die for what you really love, then you don't really love that thing or that person completely. God is willing to go to, shall we say, the extreme in order to guard his own holiness. Now, I understand that sounds incredibly strange because we're made in his image and because we don't have the kind of license that Yahweh has in response to sin. Because we're created, we're not creator. There's times when our our response to sin requires violence. So if you see um, someone being beaten up by a bunch of thugs and you step in and you thump the guy and you pull him off, you're committing a violent act in order to champion a higher virtue, which is rescuing the innocent. So there's times when you have to commit a violent act to show that you love someone. But only... Yahweh is presented to us in scripture as a being that is worthy of authorizing violence as a means of protecting his own holiness and the holiness of his people. And to those of you that may be pacifists, because he's God, he has the right, if he so chooses, to authorize his people or citizens to carry the sword on his behalf. And that's actually language that's found in the New Testament. So to illustrate this, I want to I do a case study for you tonight. So let's get on over to the book of Judges. 